Scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words from our Lord himself about prayer. May we understand them and may we be consistent in our application of them. I pray that you would be with Tom as he speaks and I pray for our hearts to be open for your spirit to make spiritual things clear to us. And I pray for the word of God as it's proclaimed around the world today, that it would be proclaimed in truth and that your spirit would bless it to the edification of your saints and to the salvation of those who are lost. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Last Sunday, we looked at the first three parts of God's big picture pattern for our prayers that Jesus gave to his disciples when they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. This morning, we're going to consider the remaining two parts of that wonderful template for our prayers that Jesus gave to us. There's a reason that I have not been putting these five points up on a PowerPoint slide behind me. If I said the words, Our Father who art in heaven, how many of you would be able to anticipate what comes next? See, I, I think that for many of us here, the outline's already in our heads. And that's the best place for it to be. <laughs> See, that is way better knowing that or at least knowing that you can go to Matthew 6 or Luke 15 and find it is way better than knowing that several years ago you saw five points up on a slide that you can't remember. This is right here. This is, this is given by the Lord Jesus Christ to us for us to come back to. Often. All the time. It's not a liturgy. We said that before. It's not a liturgy. It is a pattern. It is a template for prayer. The first part of the prayer template that Jesus gave us must be the first part of every prayer that we lift up to God. The first priority before we submit any request is our expression of delighted praise and adoration of the one that we're talking to. 
the high King of heaven who has made us His children so that we may call Him our Father. His name is holy. Then when we begin making requests of God, the first and foremost request, the overarching request that must inform and control and drive every other request that we ever submit to God is Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Once that overarching, controlling goal of everything else that we ask of God has been acknowledged to God, the advancement of His kingdom on earth through us, then we're ready to submit other requests. One of those requests is for the necessary earthly provisions that, that we require each day to carry on with the mission that He's left us here to do. So we say to Him, give us this day our daily bread. And as we make that request of God, we do so acknowledging that He takes care of those kinds of things even for birds and weeds. So we don't have to be anxious at all about such matters. And even those temporary earthly provisions are to be received and put to use as instruments for God's accomplishment of the first request. The advancement of His kingdom on earth through us, His people. And that changes the way we look at all earthly provision. It's all instruments in the hands of God. This morning we'll look at the remaining two requests in this wonderful template for prayer. And then, Lord willing, next Sunday we'll attempt to put that template into practice together. We'll ask men from the body to come up and pray in keeping with these God-ordained priorities for our prayers. The third request in Jesus' pattern for our prayers is forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Repeatedly in the New Testament, we believers are told to forgive one another as God has forgiven us. Ephesians 4, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Has forgiven means God's forgiveness of us has already happened. In the same way, Colossians 3, verses 12 and 13 says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So again, the exhortation for us to forgive each other is based on the fact that God's forgiveness of us has already happened. It's pretty straightforward. We are to forgive other people here and now in the same manner and to the same extent that God in Christ has already forgiven us. But Jesus is saying something fundamentally different here in the disciples' prayer, isn't He? See, He's going in the exact opposite direction with this matter of forgiveness. He teaches His followers to pray, Father, 
Forgive us our debts now as we also have forgiven our debtors. So now which comes first? See, the already and the now are flipped. And just in case we missed what Jesus is saying, he comes right back to the same issue right after he finishes giving us this template for prayer. And in verses 14 and 15 of Matthew 6, he says, For if, if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. He presents this principle of Christian life from the positive angle and then from the negative angle so that there's no room to miss his point. Jesus is talking here about a kind of forgiveness that God withholds from us until we stop withholding forgiveness from others. So is this some kind of theological dilemma? Some kind of Amazing tension that we have to agonize over for the rest of our lives, wondering if God has actually forgiven the debt that we owe to Him because of our sins until we can somehow manage to demonstrate that we will always forgive others with perfect consistency? That's not what's going on here at all. There are two kinds of forgiveness that we receive from God. The first kind is necessary for us to be made His children, and the second kind is necessary because we are his children. The first is once and for all, and the second is day by day. You guys who are parents ever have to forgive your children? Does that change whether they're your children? Following the lead of many faithful preachers, I call the first kind of forgiveness judicial forgiveness, and the second fatherly forgiveness. First, I need to We're going to go to a passage in Romans 4 and go ahead and turn there if you've got your Bibles. But I want to explain the word justified or justification. A lot of people here know what it means. Some may not. To be justified means to be counted or declared righteous. It is a judicial, legal term. To be counted or declared righteous. In Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul directly connects our justification our righteous standing in the eyes of God with God's forgiveness of the debt of our sin. He makes that connection emphatic and he makes it crystal clear. I believe Romans 4 is the clearest explanation in the whole Bible of how sinful human beings like you and me come to be seen as righteous in the eyes of our perfectly righteous God who does not grade on the curve. Romans 4 verses 1 through 8 says, What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather according to the flesh has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Not in the eyes of God. That little not clause is super important. And then he goes on, he says, For what does the Scripture say? And he quotes Genesis 15.6, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's an accounting term. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Then having presented Abraham as an example, Paul applies those same assertions to all the rest of of us and he says, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. 
Nothing surprising there, right? You work. You get paid for the work. That's what's expected. (laughs) But the next verse, beloved, is so unexpected that it is downright scandalous. And Paul knew that it was when he wrote it. He says, but to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. So now what you've got is Paul saying that an ungodly person can be righteous in the eyes of God without doing good works. That was so scandalous to the religious establishment of his day And it's still scandalous to the religious establishment in many circles in our day. How many religions are all about us making ourselves good enough for God? All but one. Paul's saying, here's how an ungodly man is declared righteous in the eyes of a perfectly righteous God. The perfectly righteous God. Not by doing good works, since no man can even muster up works that meet God's standard but by believing in Him who justifies the ungodly. How many people before they are saved are in that category, the ungodly? 100%. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then comes the part where Paul ties God's forgiveness together with this righteousness that's credited to our account on the basis of faith apart from works. He says, he quotes the words of King David from a thousand years earlier from Psalm 32, and he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. More accounting terminology. He says three different ways his sins have been removed from him. He's talking about the judicial forgiveness of God. God grants that complete Forgiveness once for all eternity to everyone who trusts in the person and atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is the one and only qualification any sinner like you and me will ever be given to dwell in the presence of our perfectly holy God forever and to be called His child right now. When you stop trusting in your own efforts to make yourself worthy of God, efforts that are doomed from the start, and when you instead trust only in what Jesus did for you when He died on the cross in your place, God moves your sin over to Christ's account and He credits Christ's righteousness to your account. And from that day forward, when God looks at you, He sees all of your sin, past, present, and future, nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ and paid in full. And He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ covering you. What a deal. The amazing thing is it's not a deal at all. It's a gift. It is a gift to those who deserve Eternal condemnation. Friends, that judicial forgiveness can be yours forever starting right now where you sit. 
if you will abandon your trust in your own efforts or in anything else to make you good enough for God and trust only in Jesus who justifies the ungodly, you will be saved. Once we have been made children of God through faith in Jesus alone, there's a second kind of forgiveness that must be brought to bear in our lives day by day. It's God's fatherly forgiveness. It is the day-by-day forgiveness of God toward children whose eternal destiny is already settled, whose identity as His children is already settled. It is the forgiveness that repairs the alienation, the estrangement between us and our Heavenly Father when we, His beloved children, do things that violate His character. That's the forgiveness Jesus is talking about here in this template for prayer that He gave to His disciples and to us. That day-by-day fatherly forgiveness. The prayer starts with the words, Our Father. That fatherly forgiveness is conditional. It is conditioned upon our confession of the sins that God brings to our attention every day. That's 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins... God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The topic in those first ten verses of 1 John is our fellowship with God. And it's also conditioned on one other thing. Our forgiveness of others. Jesus says, if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father also will forgive you. If you don't, He won't. Last Sunday, we said that the big extravagant request that determines and controls and drives every other request that we bring before God is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Beloved, our very purpose for drawing breath on this earth day by day after God plucked us out of the darkness is to advance His kingdom by proclaiming Christ and by showing Christ off to other people. How are we doing with that assignment when we who bear the good news of God's utterly undeserved forgiveness withhold our forgiveness from other people? Here's how we're doing. We're throwing our mission in the trash can. We are adorning our proclamation of the marvelous Gospel with the rotting garbage of our unforgiveness. That's how we're doing. And when we do that, Jesus tells tells us that our Father, the High King of heaven and earth who sent Jesus to die so that we would be eternally forgiven, is not going to forgive us here and now until He has cured us of our unforgiveness of others. That has nothing to do with your eternal destiny if you're a child of God, but beloved, it has everything to do with how painful today is going to be for you. There are times when God gets angry with His beloved children. And we're very creative at finding ways to provoke that anger. To violate His ways. But it's no accident that this is the offense that Jesus singles out when He gives us this template for how we are to pray. Later in chapter 18 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus gave His disciples a compelling word picture 
to clarify what God requires of us as His children when it comes to our forgiveness of others. That passage in Matthew 18 is popularly known as the parable of the unforgiving servant. Many of you know it, but let's just review it quickly. In the parable, the master of a household sets out to settle accounts with his servants. He has a chief steward, I believe this is the head steward of the household, who owes him 10,000 talents. And he brings that chief steward in before him and he says, it's time for you to pay your debt. And the steward who has no way to pay that enormous debt says, be patient with me and I will repay you. And the master says, I'm just going to forgive the debt. The master says he has, he felt compassion for this servant and so he forgives the debt completely. He doesn't give him a payment plan. He forgives the debt. And as soon as that chief steward has been forgiven his astronomical debt, he goes and he finds a subordinate servant that works under him who owes him a pretty small debt, relatively speaking. A hundred denarii. And he he grabs that man and he starts to choke him and he says, pay back what you owe right now. And the man pleads with him using the exact same words that the chief steward used with his master. And he asks him, he pleads for patience and he says, give me time and I'll pay off the debt. But the chief steward shows him absolutely no mercy. He orders him to be cast into prison until he pays off his debt. And the other slaves who have seen all this going on, they go and they report what happened to the, to the master. And the master summons the chief servant again and he brings him before him and he says, you wicked servant. I forgave you that entire debt because you asked me. You should have shown the same mercy to that other servant, your fellow slave. After the parable, Jesus says to His disciples, so shall My heavenly Father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. The point of that forceful parable becomes clear when you compare the two debts. A hundred denarii is a hundred days wages for a typical hired worker. That's three and a half months wages roughly. Now, if you owed a debt of that magnitude to somebody, you could pay it off if you doubled down and you just took seriously the need to repay that debt. might take a while, but it's doable. On the other hand, 10,000 talents is uh, an unbelievable debt. A talent of silver in that era was about 50 pounds of silver. By some measures, it's 100 pounds, but we'll keep it conservative. That means that the chief steward owed his master 500,000 pounds of silver. 250 tons of silver. By today's valuation, that's over $100 million of value. Now, if you earn $40,000 a year and you don't spend any of it, it will only take you 2,500 years to pay off that debt. See, Jesus is taking 
a number, 10,000 talents, which sounds like a finite debt, and he's putting it out there into the parable, and these men know what that means. And his point is that the chief steward owed to the master is an infinite debt. It's a debt he could never even begin to pay. And that debt represents your debt and my debt to God because of our sin. It represents the debt of every single human being to God. The lesson of the parable couldn't be clearer. See, sin is the great equalizer. When you try to compare your infinite debt to God with anybody else's infinite debt to God, it makes for some very clarifying math. Because in order to make a comparison, the debt has to be measurable. And yours isn't, and the other person's isn't. You and I remain here on earth to tell other men, women, and children about the undeserved gift of forgiveness that made us right with God. That forgiveness removed an infinite debt. And then we say to a fellow sinner, your sin against me is too great. You don't deserve for me to forgive you. And God says to us, Where would you be if I gave you what you deserved? When you withhold forgiveness from another sinner, you are being an ungrateful child, but much more importantly, you are flatly contradicting the Gospel that you are here to proclaim and adorn. Forgiveness is at the very heart of the Gospel that we bear to this world. Nothing else that we do as Christians in this mortal life shows off the Gospel of Jesus Christ more vividly or more impactfully than when we love the unlovable and forgive the unforgivable. And nothing betrays the Gospel as utterly as our unforgiveness of another person. John MacArthur says forgiveness is the most godlike act that we are allowed to do on this earth. He says, never are you more like God than when you forgive. If you say you are a child of God, then you ought to act like your father. End of quote. When you refuse to forgive your wife or your husband or your child or your parent or your brother or your sister, or your co-worker, or your enemy of the debt that he owes to you because of his sin against you or against someone that you love, you are burying the Gospel under the refuse of your own unforgiveness. And God is not going to let one of His children, one of His ambassadors on earth, stay in that mode. You and I can count on that. That's what Jesus said right after the disciples' prayer. If you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. He will never turn a blind eye to your unforgiveness. He will be at work in you to discipline you as a faithful Father until He cures you of that unforgiveness, even if it takes your whole earthly life. Hebrews 12 tells us that our Heavenly Father is perfect when it comes to disciplining His children. And He's also relentless. 
He scourges every son that he receives. And why does he do that? The passage in Hebrews 12 says, so that we may share his holiness. So that we may come to possess the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The promise that God won't leave you to your unforgiving spirit is not a threat. Well, it is, but it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. (laughs) It's a good and gracious promise from our good and gracious Father. I made a big point last week of the fact that the first request in this wonderful template for prayer, the request that is to control and, and drive every other request, is our request to our Father to use us to advance His kingdom. That His kingdom will be realized on this earth. This request regarding forgiveness absolutely falls under that one. Our forgiveness or unforgiveness of others profoundly impacts the credibility of the gospel that we bear to unbelievers. So the connection between the advancement of God's kingdom should be readily apparent there. The advancement of the kingdom and our forgiveness. How about the impact on the body of Christ? That affects the kingdom too, doesn't it? The unity of the body of Christ is indispensable to the church's assignment to advance the kingdom of Christ on earth. And forgiveness is indispensable to the unity of the body of Christ. If you ask God to prosper His kingdom through you while you're withholding forgiveness from a fellow heir of God, you're nullifying your own request. God's will and God's kingdom are not going to thrive through unforgiving Christians. Make no mistake, God's will and God's kingdom are going to thrive on earth. He will see to that. But not through those among us who refuse to forgive as we have been forgiven. And they will not thrive through local flocks, local churches that are riddled with unforgiveness. So when we pray to the high King of heaven and earth, the holy and righteous God who has made us His own beloved children, when we ask Him to advance His kingdom through these jars of clay, we also come to Him and we say, Father, forgive us as we have forgiven others. And if we are unforgiving toward another father, we expect you not to let us get away with it. You ever pray that prayer to God? Our continued request to God is, Heavenly Father, in your dealings with us today as your blood-bought children, hold us to your kingdom standard of forgiveness. We don't want to be benched by our unforgiveness. We don't want to cancel out our proclamation of Christ by our unforgiveness. We don't want to dishonor our Savior and Master by refusing to forgive others when He died to forgive us. So when we don't forgive others, Father, extend to us that sorrowful, painful discipline that will make us share Your holiness so that we can be joyful and useful instruments to spread your kingdom over this whole earth. Add that to your prayers. Even the very act of praying that 
prayer is part of how God answers it, I believe. See, it's a whole lot harder to justify your unforgiveness if you're asking God not to put up with it. (laughs) The last request in this marvelous template for prayer is lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Literally, from the evil. What is the evil? Well, it might refer to all the evil that we encounter during our lives here under the curse, but just within this last week, I shifted over to the other fairly common understanding of that, and that is I believe it's referring to the evil one, to say, and I'm about to tell you how I came to that. But however you interpret that phrase, the point of this final request in this template of prayer is the same. It is for us to express our utter dependence on the one who has already been victorious against every evil that exists in creation. Who, according to Matthew's Gospel, was actually led into temptation? Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, right after God declared from heaven at the baptism of Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, Matthew tells us at the beginning of chapter 4 that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He was led into temptation. And now Jesus tells us to pray, Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You think maybe there's a connection between those two events, those two passages? If you look closely at the parts of Satan's temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4 and you compare them with the parts of the disciples' prayer in Matthew 6, I believe you will find a compelling correspondence between those parts. Satan's first temptation of Jesus was about daily bread. Satan's second temptation of Jesus was about divine protection. And his third temptation was about an earthly kingdom. Satan made a valiant effort to get Jesus to abandon God's agenda for each of those three blessings. He tried to get Jesus to lay hold of those blessings on terms other than His Father's terms. And if you look at the request that Jesus instructs us to bring before God in the disciples' prayer, and you temporarily set aside the only one of those requests that could not possibly apply to Jesus, which is the request for His Father's forgiveness. (laughs) Jesus never sinned. He didn't have to ask for that. What you have left is three requests regarding the same three blessings that Satan tempted Jesus to lay hold of by abandoning God's will. The kingdom of God on earth, daily bread, and divine protection. Now, I don't want to oversell the connections between those two passages, but I do believe that the common elements go a long way to explaining the heart of this final request that Jesus taught us to offer up to God. Jesus is our perfect forerunner in our daily battle against every temptation and every evil that temporarily exists in God's creation. He is our perfect forerunner. Before Jesus died in our place, He was led into temptation in our place. And think for just a moment about the magnitude of that temptation. 
How many times have you gone 40 days and 40 nights without any food and then been offered bread if you'll just take it on your terms instead of God's? How many times have you been offered kingship over all of the kingdoms and domains on the face of the earth? Think for a moment about what that would include. Solomon was king over just one earthly kingdom. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines, all chosen from among the most physically beautiful women in Israel and in all of the nations that surrounded Israel. He had material wealth that could buy more than any man could ever consume in a lifetime. And Satan was offering Jesus infinitely more than all of that. Have you ever faced a temptation like that? And how many times have you had to stand toe-to-toe, not just against evil men or even demonic powers, but face-to-face against the devil himself? You think you've had to overcome some serious temptation in your life? Yours and mine will never come close to what Jesus had to overcome that day. And beloved, that was the easy temptation compared with the one that Jesus faced at the end of His earthly life. The temptation to say no so His Father would not abandon Him for the sake of hateful enemies of God like you and I were. Jesus responded to both of those extreme temptations and to every temptation that occurred in between And all the temptations he faced when he was growing up without sin. Without one single sin. So when we pray, our Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We are making that request of the one whose own beloved Son won a smack down victory over every temptation and every evil that exists. That's why we come to Him in prayer. That's why we come to Him daily for His fatherly protection, knowing that He is more than able and more than willing to hear and answer that request. He is the shepherd and guardian of our souls. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. He will not deny us the protection that He promises. That does not mean that God's going to put a force field around us so that Satan can't get anywhere near us. It does not mean that we won't face exceedingly enticing temptations in this life. It means that God will be right here leading us through those wolf-infested thickets into His green pastures. It means that right in the thick middle of the very hardest battles of this earthly life, Our Father, the God of the universe, will set up a table before us in the presence of our enemies and He will sit down for dinner with us and nothing and no one will ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It means that no matter how bad things look to you on any given day, beloved, it is well with your soul because of God. So Jesus says to us, Children of God, come to your Father daily and agree with Him about that. Brothers and sisters, so many 
children of the living God are crippled in this life and they are made useless for God's eternal purposes because they believe a lie straight from the pit that tells them they are powerless to resist the pull, the enticement of evil. They give up on their marriages because they believe that their chronic failures as husbands and wives, as fathers and mothers, have proven them unable ever to fulfill those roles. They refuse to take on meaningful ministry in the body of Christ and in the lives of the people around them because they're convinced that they are unable to overcome sins that disqualify them from representing Christ. So they become what J.I. Packer calls balconiers instead of runners. They sit on the balcony outside of the battle and they watch other people engage in the advancement of the kingdom of God while they sit in despair. But Jesus says to every single one of His redeemed and beloved children, come to your Father. Ask Him to be your protector against the forces of evil. He will not deny you. Beloved, do you really think that God sent His own eternally beloved Son to go through all that He suffered on this earth and at the cross so that He could say no to you when you ask Him to be your protector and provider? There's not a chance. This is so very important. We have to come to Him. We have to come to Him in prayer. Prayer is not something that we can do without, beloved. Prayer is not something that we can do without. The Christian life is not about us mustering up the resolve to resist temptation and live righteously. The Christian life demands complete, intentional, verbally declared, daily dependence on the King of all creation who has already won complete victory over every temptation, over every evil, and who is in control of every blessing that exists. We must come to our Father in utter dependence on the only One who is able to advance His kingdom through us. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. You know what dependent people do? They depend. And you know what the, what the very essence, the very hallmark of our dependence is day by day? It is our prayers to the living God. Prayer is not dispensable. Whatever it is, beloved, that fills your days and convinces you that you do not have time to come before your Father and talk to Him, something needs to be pushed aside in favor of that. We must come to Him in prayer. Here are God's prayer requests. Here is His design. I, when I know I got a little flack last week for talking about God's prayer requests. God doesn't have to ask for anything. What I mean, of course, is His, His agenda for our prayers. Here's His design for our prayers to Him. Our Father, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. 
Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have committed sins against us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, High King of heaven and earth, You called us out of pitch black darkness into Your astonishing light. You called us out of death into eternal life. You have showered upon us a grace that leaves us stunned and in awe that the holy God of everything has made us Your beloved children. And we are forever thankful to You. Holy is Your name. We pray, Father, that You will make us joyful and willing instruments for the spread of Your kingdom on earth one soul at a time. Whatever it takes for You to do that through us individually and together, Father, we ask You to do it. We ask You to give us the things that we need daily to continue in that marvelous assignment while we are here under the curse. And we ask for those things knowing that You will always give us what we need every day of our lives. We don't have to beg You. Teach us, Father, to treat every one of those gracious earthly provisions as instruments to be rendered back to You and used for Your eternal purposes so that none of those things will distract us from living as Your ambassadors while we are here. We ask You, Father, for the sake of Your glorious kingdom to forgive us as we forgive others and when we are unforgiving. We ask You to hold our feet to the fire of Your kingdom standard of forgiveness. Do not relent until You teach us to forgive others as You have forgiven us, even if You have to teach us over and over and over again. And Father, we ask and trust You as the shepherd and guardian of our souls to keep watch over us day by day against the world forces of darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places as You lead us on the path of righteousness for Your name's sake. That we may honor You every day of our lives. We ask all of these things in the glorious, incomparable name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I would ask you between now and next week to spend a little time looking again at this template for prayer. And then when we come together next time, I'll open us in the teaching hour and then we're going to spend some time praying.